You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Even Lincoln, Bell says, was prepared to use direct action methods. We have planned a small campaign which has a fight as one of its remote contingencies. First of all, I just want to start out. It is so important to recommend the podcast to someone else. If you have a friend who you know likes history and politics, please recommend this podcast to them. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Just as surely as you are proud to be white, we're proud to be black. Black is beautiful, baby. It's pretty. Adam Clayton Powell Jr. was born in 1908. He's the second child an only son of Adam Clayton Powell Sr., their poor family initially in Virginia. But his father had worked his way up, attended Wayland Seminary, historically African-American college in Virginia, and did postgraduate study at Yale and the Virginia Theological Seminary. The year Adam Clayton Powell Jr. is born, his father becomes pastor of the prominent Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem in New York City. Right at the time he becomes pastor, Harlem expands, the church expands, the congregation has 10,000 people in it. Um, While his father is a successful pastor, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. decides on being a speaker for civil rights, speaking out against injustice. Here's what a historian Charles Hamilton wrote. It was a person in the 1940s who would at least speak out, and that would be different. African Americans were angry that no northern liberals You know, they might vote for them here or there for an issue or once in a while write a favorable comment, but they would not get up on the floor of Congress and challenge the segregationists directly. So when a district was created that would be majority black in New York, Powell ran and Powell certainly promised to do that. He was virtually alone. There was one other African-American congressman at the time that he served. When he arrives in Congress... He decides that he's going to take it up a notch in terms of resistance. He's not just going to, you know, he'll be flamboyant, he'll be charismatic, but he's not going to be polite in the face of segregationists. He's the only one. There's Congressman Rankin from Mississippi who uses the N-word right on the floor of Congress in the 1940s, and Pell challenges him for it. This isn't the kind of decorum that we need in the House. He didn't get anywhere. It didn't change Rankin's mind, it didn't change his language at all, but people liked it, but he was defiant. He challenges the ban on black representatives using capital facilities, which were reserved previously for white members. And he broke those illegal and immoral traditions. Took constituents from Harlem, who were African-American, to dine with them, right in the whites-only house restaurant. 
Congressman Rankin would um, had decided he would never sit next to an African-American man. And uh, to challenge him, Powell would always try when there was available seat to sit next to them. And sometimes you'd have this comic scene where Rankin kept getting up and Powell kept sitting next to him and Rankin would get up and sit somewhere else and Powell would sit next to him. He also would apply amendments to almost every spending bill. Anytime there was spending, Powell would offer an amendment saying federal funds should be denied to any jurisdiction that maintains segregation. He had two motives for this. Embarrassed liberals who were saying good things but wouldn't vote and anger Southern politicians. Eventually it happened so much that Powell would just refer to it as our customary amendment. I move our customary amendment. As crazy as it was at the time that he proposed it, by 1964, it would be Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Keep the faith, baby. Spread it gently and walk together, children, was his slogan. People loved him in his home district and kept reelecting him. But he did get into some legal troubles. There was a scandal with how he spent money, scandal on how he paid taxes. He gets into a slander suit because there's a woman who's has an opposite view of him on police corruption. She supports the police elderly African-American domestic aide. He calls her a bag woman for on-the-take cops. She demands an apology. Powell doesn't give it. And uh, he's sued for defamation. He, she wins in court. He's ordered to pay $211,000. Fails to appear. Fails to pay. Fails to answer the subpoenas. There's also an allegation that he got a no-show job for his wife. Paid for private travel with public funds. Democrats vote not to seat him in 1967. They vote 307 to 116 to deny him a seat. Eventually, the Supreme Court orders that he has to be seated. And he wins his Supreme Court case. But he will be defeated for re-election in 1970. Charles Rangel, who will also serve for quite a long time, um, defeats him. Pal V. McCormick is a 20th century president. We know Pal, right? We just talked about him. And McCormick was the Speaker of the House. The Supreme Court ruled that the House's constitutional authority to judge the qualifications of its own members was post facto and only could be exercised via expulsion after a two-thirds of Congress in an affirmative vote. The House and the Senate have no discretion when deciding whether to seat a candidate who has been duly elected under state law. But they may take steps to expel that member after they have been sworn in. Look, there isn't a pending case. A lot of times on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, I'm going to talk about things that I find interesting. And in 15 years of, of doing the program, I've kind of learned that I can do a few topics and save it for later because it may come up. And we have a lot of strangeness in our politics and a lot of antics. And it's good to know all of the nooks and crannies of the rules, including some of the weird ones. Um, the uh, last member to be expelled from the House we talked about that in a previous is, was James Trafficant in 2002. And he was expelled for bribery. Although that power is there to expel representatives, it's hard to get a two-thirds vote. Really hard. Um, so there are only five in history. Uh, three of them were House members that supported the Confederate rebellion and were thrown out. 
1980, Michael Myers was convicted of bribery. And in 2002, James Traficant, tax evasion, racketeering, conspiracy to defraud the United States, bribery there too. A lot of things for Traficant. Um, so it's very, very rare to do it, but it's something to be aware of. It is a power, and we were going to talk about an episode where that power was probably exploited, but maybe if it was done successfully at the time, might have changed history. So the story that we're and the reason that the Powell story is of, of interest, of course, is that for all the controversy, he was a very forceful fighter for an issue that needed it. An imperfect spokesperson, perhaps. But also, it has to do with Congress's role in seating members of the House. You know, we think that we elect the members of the House, and we do, we do, but it's important to remember it's important to remember that the Constitution gives pretty strong powers to the House, including deciding which members to seat. And there was a controversy over this that got a president a lot of trouble in a midterm, and we're going to tell that story in this episode. I told this story back in 2007, so I think one of the good things about having a podcast for what is now 12 years, 2006 when it started, is that hey, I can repeat a few stories, right? <laughs> we have a lot of new listeners now, I would hope. Uh, you may know your history, but you may not know that in the middle of the Civil War, five months after Union troops had repelled the Confederate Army, advancing on Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Abraham Lincoln found that his own Congress was under attack. But it wasn't the great Confederate army commanded by Robert E. Lee threatening to grasp the Capitol Dome, then under construction, from Lincoln's control. It was a short, bearded man, a clerk named Emerson Etheridge. Lincoln's Republicans had been hurt by the midterms of 1862, and now they actually represented a tactical minority of Congress, the Republicans did. It was only with the newly elected Republicans from the new state of West Virginia, and also from Oregon, and also from Kansas, that Lincoln held any power. Now, fearing funny business might go on when the old Congress ended in March of 1863. This is the before the days when Congress always started in January. They passed a law which formally provided the clerk with the ability to certify the credentials of members-elect, new members coming in. It allowed the clerk to count loyalists from the portion of the South under Union military control if it was needed. So if the Republicans needed three extra votes, say, in a House measure, they could go to the Louisiana Territory, an area of Louisiana right around New Orleans that was now under Union control, and maybe get three representatives from that area. But the statute didn't say it was limited to those southern states where the clerk could make a decision about credentials. And a problem with the whole theory of doing that is that Emerson Etheridge was from Tennessee. He had been a loyal administration supporter for the first year and a half of the war. But when the scene changed and the Emancipation Proclamation was passed, Etheridge, like some other Tennessee loyalists, opposed freedom and social equality for former slaves, and he felt betrayed 
by the Republican Party and betrayed by Lincoln. He's sitting there as clerk. Etheridge conspires in the city of Washington with Democrats and conservative unionists to, in effect, take over the House from the Republican Party. He decided that he would accept the credentials of Democratic and conservative unionist congressmen, but not the credentials of the new pro-Lincoln Republicans who had just been elected from those states. And the reason that he had this power is because of the statute and because of the fact that the Speaker would not be sitting in the chair yet. Congress had just started, and there would only be one man, Etheridge, presiding, and no one to challenge his decision. So, why is this dangerous? Well, Lincoln faced the situation of many presidents after a midterm. And if he was to lose control of the House through such a procedure, okay, uh, you know, there are a lot of... uh, uh, war Democrats who are going to say, you know, we support the prosecution of the war. We support fighting the South. We support, we support the Union being held together. But in practice, you're going to see a lot more investigation, you're going to see a lot more withholding of funds, a lot more questioning about the war, and much more attempts at peace and demands that the executive make attempts at peace with the South that are going to frustrate the war efforts. I mean, I think a good way to think about war Democrats sometimes and then there's variations between them. Some are just outright copperhead, basically supporting the South. And then you have some like uh, Andrew Johnson, who really wanted to take it to the South, but just happened to be a Democrat by party. And if somewhere in the middle, I think like Joel Parker of New Jersey is a good example. Belly aching uh, about Lincoln, about the prosecution of the war, about having to raise troops, but certainly once troops came near Gettysburg, raising a regiment of New Jersey volunteers and supporting and funding the Union effort. So you have a lot of uh, variances, but you don't want people like Parker and his crowd, if you're Lincoln, in charge of the, uh, and his party in charge of the Congress. Well, in this, they had an ally, and that was Etheridge himself, because like many Washingtonians then and now, he talked a little bit too much about his great scheme. The word got out to the Republicans and a very concerned President Lincoln. He summoned the Speaker-to-be, Colfax of Indiana, to the White House, and asked him to organize Republicans to be sure that they, he said, be sure our men get in there. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. In December of 1863, when the new Congress finally convened, it took a while back then between the midterm elections and when the new Congress would sit. Emerson Etheridge excluded 16 Republicans from the roll call vote. This would have been a loss of control. But Etheridge got a little ahead of himself in committing a parliamentary mistake that allowed Republicans to vote on a motion to table. The Republicans would do an excellent job of persuading members to vote no on the motion to table, which, once defeated, meant that the 16 members then had to be seated. But the close call was not a vote of confidence for the nation and a president at war. A Republican congressman from Massachusetts, Henry Dawes, compared the event to Bull Run, which had been a military disaster for the Union, and said he could think of nothing so disastrous. Hi, and thanks for subscribing to the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics premium podcast. I do appreciate it. And as you know, I like to get into a little more detail about certain things that were kind of left in the notepad or the legal pad after the podcast. And that podcast with Matt Lewis discussing the midterm results, you know, I really wanted to get to that interview and not beleaguer the audience with uh, some stories. But the uh, story about Emerson Etheridge and his battle as House clerk to essentially control Congress, you know, there's a lot more to that story that I wanted to get into. And uh, one of the main sources for it is an article in 1970 from the Journal of Southern History, The Etheridge Conspiracy of 1863, a projected conservative coup by Herman Bels, who was a professor at the University of Maryland, who took this topic on. One of the interesting side notes is the reason that he was writing an article in 1970 about this Etheridge conspiracy is that he wanted to point out how important it was in history that the Congress has some control over who it actually seats and who it might exclude, because just then there had been a controversy over Representative Adam Clayton Powell Jr., he had been criticized, a very powerful chairman, he had been criticized for taking trips abroad, overspending his budget. When they attacked by it, he just said he was doing everything that every other chairman had done. And because he was an African-American congressman and very brash about what he was saying, and he was targeted. Um, the House Democratic Caucus stripped Powell of his committee chairmanship in 1967. And then the full House refused to seat him after that until a completion of investigation by the Judiciary Committee. He, of course, didn't like that very much. Powell said, This day, the day of March 1967, is the end of the United States of America as the land of the free and the home of the brave. But when they threw a special election to fill this vacancy, Powell ran and Powell won it. And then he didn't take his seat because he was filing a lawsuit. And in the case of Powell v. McCormick, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the House had acted unconstitutionally, when excluded Powell, as he had been duly elected by his constituents. Now, that doesn't mean he would be without controversy forever. 
Adam Clayton Powell Jr. was increasingly absent from his district and from the House. And in June 1970, he was beaten in the Democratic primary by Charles Rangel. Rangel, incidentally, served as a congressman until 2017. So that's 47 years in this uh, Harlem-based, Harlem, New York-based district. And uh, he ended up with a few ethics scandals of his own at the end and, and decided not to run for re-election. Okay, so there can be seating controversies throughout history, but, you know, the, we talked about the story of uh, Etheridge, the clerk, and, you know, one of the things to understand about him is that he was quite a colorful character and seen that way in Washington and in Tennessee. He had been a Whig. So you have to understand that the story of the Etheridge conspiracy, which really was a conspiracy because in, in the quick mention on the podcast, it, it makes it seem like I suppose that like Etheridge acted alone. It was just like his idea. No, he was um, a meeting with uh, Samuel Cox, who is a significant leader of the House Democrats. This would be people that were seeking peace with the Confederacy, really. Uh, maybe they might pledge as war Democrats, but uh, seeking to really come to an end to the war and opposing the Lincoln administration and the funding of the war effort. He's a congressman from Ohio, and uh, Samuel Cox wanted to be speaker. And so this was actually a conspiracy. But one of the interesting things about it is that you see in um, the Etheridge story is that um, – the difference between the beginning of the Civil War and the end of the Civil War in the North and in the politics of Washington, D.C., and in the beginning, Lincoln and a lot of the Republicans were very careful to court border state people like Etheridge, like Andy Johnson, who, you know, would become Lincoln's vice president and then president, of course, but was an ally, at least initially, of Etheridge. This was the type of uh, person that Etheridge, as a Whig in Tennessee, not one of the kind of fire-eater Democrats, and a unionist in Tennessee, not a supporter of secession. This is one of the people that he would ally himself with. And in the beginning, because of that status, being a unionist in Tennessee, and Etheridge is going to be a part of a situation where he's speaking at a union event and secessionists in Tennessee attack them, and one of his uh, friends and political allies is killed. I mean, that's how violent and dangerous the politics were in Tennessee that that he faced. So you have to understand that him then coming to Washington, he's seen as something as a celebrity, someone to court, someone who is very significant. It's like, here's a guy from the South who didn't secede, who didn't leave with the rest of his state and, you know, is seen as a very brave individual. That's why, if you're wondering, how did this guy get to be clerk of the House of Representatives? That's how. I like what Bell says here to, to lay the scene. One tends to forget, so clearly does 1863 appear to be the decisive year of the war. It's the year of Vicksburg, Gettysburg. That to contemporaries, the outcome of military and political events could appear to be so certain. After long months of defeat, Union armies won impressive victories in Gettysburg and Vicksburg, yet the South's principal armies remained in the field. And before superior northern resources could take their toll, political changes might alter the military situation. In scattered state elections in 1863, Republicans scored victories. But it was by no means clear that the conservative resurgence of the year before, the midterms of 1862, where so many conservative unionists or Democrats had beaten Republicans, had run its course. There continued to be strong opposition to conscription, arbitrary arrests, confiscation, and 
the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, the Emancipation Proclamation in history is often seen as something just inherently brave. It was a great act for Lincoln to do this. Almost to the point that it's even questioned whether it was so. That um, you, you heard on the podcast recently that I had a, a listener who asked about the Emancipation Proclamation. Didn't it really do nothing anyway? Well, in the midterm of 1862 is where Lincoln's going to play, pray, pay the price for that. There was a political price. It wasn't an easy thing to do to just issue an Emancipation Proclamation. And after that midterm, it's going to embolden people like Emerson Etheridge, who was seething over this. And for a couple of reasons, not just because he was opposed to the emancipation of slaves in the South, or at least the federal government doing that for, say, the states. But he also felt bitter about it because to him, it was a betrayal of the people who were down south or in these border states fighting for the union to have their president do that to them when they're the ones kind of in the front lines of this battle. And so he was awfully bitter about that. And this is this is a lot of the motivation for his actions. Throughout the war, party lines were unstable in many states. Democrats, decimated by secession, were loosely divided into war and peace factions. Republicans tended to separate into radical and moderate conservative wings, despite Lincoln's skill in reconciling differences. And border state unionists alternated between support and criticism of the administration. The attempt to bring about a new alignment of parties, which was to be a central theme in Reconstruction, had its origin in the instability of party lines during the war. Congressional Democrats in 1862 tried to form a coalition of anti-Republican forces. And though border state unionists remained aloof, they cooperated with Democrats and conservative Republicans in modifying potentially radical legislation. And if you want to compare things to our times, this editorial from the St. Louis, Missouri Republican of November of 1863 said, there were but two parties in Congress, the obliterationists, including radicals such as Salmon P. Chase, Charles Sumner, and William Whiting of the War Department, and the moderate constitutional party, consisting of Democrats, border state unionists, and conservative Republicans. I mean, I think that's kind of right. Uh, and the war is going to change politics. It's, it's going to be difficult to be too much of a peacenik. They did exist. Copperheads did exist, particularly in the Democratic Party. Um, the lending ham was chased out of the country. Lincoln had him deported. But, um, people like Blair, uh, Francis Preston Blair and that family of conservative Republicans were looking at the possible of like a possibility of a political realignment. Maybe getting Blair for Speaker of the House a conservative border state platform. So there's a lot going on that makes this very live and makes this not just some a scheme by a little bearded man, but uh, a part of a larger picture. I mean, as we discussed, and we didn't, I didn't have time to get into it too much, there was legislation in January 1863 by a radical Republican, James Ashley of Ohio, directing the clerk to place on the rolls the names of representatives from loyal states. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Specifically excluding members elect from occupied rebel states. Um, that doesn't pass, but then a unionist, John Menzies of Kentucky, uh, soon after passes a bill that says the clerk should place on the roll only the names of persons whose credentials showed that they were regularly elected in accordance with the laws of their states, respectively, or the laws of the United States. They want to exclude people from Congress that Lincoln would call improper applicants, and the radicals would say were bogus members from rebel states or anything like that. They don't want that happening. That's how precarious the situation was in, was in Congress, where they feared that might happen. But they forgot to say, that the act did not expressly bar members-elect from union-controlled states. It didn't take long for people in Washington to start talking about, especially these border state unionists and Democrats mulling around to say, the clerk's now the master of the position. And Etheridge had been making speeches against the Emancipation Proclamation. He didn't seem to be a fan of the administration. The Democratic New York World says, the pit which these Republicans digged for their enemies, inconveniently yawned under their own feet. Samuel Cox meets with Etheridge several times over the summer, and getting into the season of Congress, which is going to start in December of 1863, uh, after the Union victories. Cox says that Etheridge had an eccentric and indomitable genius for politics. Even though for two years, he was a staunch supporter of the government's war policy of crushing the South. And he had opposed as early as 1854 as a Whig, one of seven Southern Whigs to do so, opposed the Kansas-Nebraska Act and opposed the repeal of the Missouri Compromise. So this wasn't like some wild partisan guy. He was a tough, um, schooled in politics 
Whig. But he wasn't believer in equality among the races. He just simply would say that social equality is a thing almost wholly unknown, even in the most radical of the anti-slavery states. And you're not doing it up in Massachusetts. Why should you put this on to the whole country was his point. He's already part of one political conspiracy. I mean, first of all, he's already talking about bad manning the the administration, oh, our matchless president, he calls it, and oh, look at how great the victories have been sarcastically, you know, with the policy of adding uh, African-American troops. So he's, you know, this is not a um, forward-thinking guy, um, and he's already involved in a political conspiracy trying to elect William Campbell as civil governor to supersede Andrew Johnson, and Johnson had been his friend. But he'd rather, rather than have a military government, he wants a civil government in the part of Tennessee that's now been occupied and pacified the, the, by the, uh, mostly the eastern part, but also Memphis by the, um, by the Union. Lincoln gets word of the Etheridge plot in October 1863. I mean, a lot of people are talking, but particularly from James R. Hood, the postmaster at Chattanooga, who knows Etheridge and knows what he's capable of. Um, he was a friend of Etheridge, he tells Lincoln, but as a constitutional enemy of the Democratic Party, he felt it's his duty to explain the clerk of house under cover of the act of March 3rd, 1863, intended to reject several's member, several members elect on the ground that their certificates of election were not precisely in accordance with the requirements of their state constitution and laws. So first, Hood recommends to Lincoln, tell these guys to get very good certificates corrected from their states and everything like that. And he says, you know he has the courage for this quasi-revolutionary act. Lincoln writes a lot of different people about it. Some you'll know, Senator James Grimes of Iowa, Zachariah Chandler of Michigan, uh, Jacob Colomer of Vermont, William Sprague of Rhode Island. These are very powerful figures in the radical to moderate Republican Party. Writes a letter to Vice President Hannibal Hamlin of Maine. You know, get everybody in order. This is, uh, there's some danger that this is going, this act that you passed to shut down improper applicants will be used to shut down proper ones. So he takes it seriously, and that's probably what saves it. So they come up with a variety of uh, schemes among the Republicans. One is that if Etheridge should try to exclude Republican members elect, Thaddeus Stevens would move that Elihu B. Washburn of Illinois, the oldest member of the House, in point of consecutive service act as Speaker pro tem. The motion carried, Washburn would preside and permanent organization would ensue after certificates were corrected. So... That's one of the first plans that will get Etheridge off the presiding of the House by appointing a speaker pro tem, speaker for the time being. And they do try to, uh, there's a group, uh, Henry Dawes of Massachusetts and Frederick Pike, that, that does go and meet with Etheridge and try to dissuade him from carrying out this scheme. Um, Etheridge is a little coy about it. He seeks to allay their fears. Uh, and this is what Dawes writes about it. I was with Etheridge until 10 in the evening trying to smooth the fur. If he keeps today the promise of last night, we shall get over this inchoate revolution. Yet he is, uncomprehend- he is incomprehensible. And a revolution may be inaugurated in the hall of the house. 
So he's meeting with them, talking with them, getting all kinds of assurances. No, I've got to do it. And they don't. They don't uh, uh, believe him. I guess this is how Etheridge is, is known to be. Um, there's one more option besides all the various parliamentary maneuvers that is thought about and taken seriously. And uh, this is even seen in the letters of James Garfield, who now is a congressman. And he's going to be a president in the future. And he is one of the people that's seeking to avoid what's uh, going to happen if the House is captured by border state unionists and uh, conservative Democrats. Um, here's how B- Belts writes it. As a last resort, Republicans considered the forcible ejection of the clerk. Garfield explained, we have planned a small campaign which has a fight as one of its remote contingencies. Even Lincoln, Bell says, was prepared to use direct action methods. Having done all he can do to meet the legal requirements of the case, his secretaries later recorded the president was not inclined to rely rely exclusively upon moral force. On the evening of December 6th, he called Schuyler Colfax, who was going to be the caucus nominee for speaker. You know, the last speaker had been uh, uh, Galusha Groh, uh, from Pennsylvania had actually been defeated in election in 1862. He was one of the victims of the, the blue wave of 1862. Um, so Lincoln calls in Schuyler Colfax and says, the main thing is to be sure to have all our men there. Then if Mr. Etheridge undertakes revolutionary proceedings, let him be carried out on a chip and let our men organize the house. So, I mean, Had they not been able to get this parliamentary maneuver, they might as well just um, (laughs) rush the stage, start a fight, and either cause such a disruption that the House would have to end proceedings, right, and then they could organize later, or just simply remove it. I mean, you know, this is is, uh, not the first time that there's been violence or threatened violence in the House in 1860s, and this is what uh, the 1850s and 1860s really, and this is what uh, was... One of the things proposed. Um, they didn't need to do it. Of course, as we discussed on the cast, we went through it really quickly and not all the parliamentary procedure, but Etheridge starts reading the role of members-elect, and it's apparent that he indeed excluded the 16 representatives from Maryland, Missouri, West Virginia, Kansas, and Oregon, and added the names of three representatives from Louisiana, not the ones that Lincoln wanted, but ones that were elected by a conservative faction in the area occupied by Union troops, New Orleans generally, who wanted to run things with the Democrats and conservative border state unionists. Thaddeus Stevens at once requested the names of the excluded members to be read. Etheridge then explained that their credentials did not show, or rather, in the clerk's opinion, did not show that they ought to have shown according to the Act of 3rd of March, 1863. Now, <laughs> I, just me saying that, I think you got to capture a little of the emotion in the chamber. You now have, the Republicans are well aware that they're the ones that passed that Act of 1863 to try to give themselves an edge. And now the clerk is saying, oh, according to this act, without saying this part, that you guys passed, uh, I'm excluding these people. In fact, John Stiles of Pennsylvania, a Democrat, then calls for a reading of the act. Etheridge sees the opportunity 
According to one eyewitness, he read the requirement about the credentials very forcibly, looking half defiantly to the administration's side as if to say, there, gentlemen, get over your own legislation if you can. Well, you know, this moment of fun would be ended, of course. As Belt says, a climax was reached when Henry Dawes proposed that the names of the Maryland members be added to the roll. One Democrat moves to table the resolution. Another protests that the motion was out of order. This is where Etheridge makes a mistake. He chooses to rule that the motion, that the names of the Maryland members be added to the roll, is in order. As being pertinent to the organization of the House. Now it's, now you got to think about it. Maybe he lost sense of what he was doing. This is not a, you know, he's a clerk, not, not usually a parliamentary leader. Or maybe he, um, he thought, this is what Belf suggests, that there was enough strength between the Board of Unionists and Democrats and a few conservative Republicans to actually vote this down. Samuel Cox tries to get his members to vote for this tabling motion. A vote was called on the motion to table Dawes' resolution, and it was defeated, 74 to 94. The margin of victory for the administration was provided by five Democrats and six border state unionists who voted with the Republicans. After this motion, you've now denied the motion to table. Congress must act. They have to add vote on adding the members. Of course, the Republicans control the votes, Clerk's no longer in charge. They elect a speaker, Schuyler Colfax, and Republicans are in charge and seat all the members. It's then that a representative from Kentucky actually renominates Emerson Etheridge for a clerk. And, you know, one Congress member says, that takes a lot of brass to do that. Thaddeus Stephen gets up and says, is the levity of the gentleman from Kentucky allowed under House rules? (laughs) Etheridge will go on to have a career in Tennessee politics. He's going to be bitterly opposed to the administration after this, if he wasn't before. He's bitterly opposed to Reconstruction. He runs against uh, the Reconstruction governor for the governorship of Tennessee. There is going to be an interesting incident Two years later, in December 1865, when representatives from the southern states knocked on the door of Congress, the situation was reversed. This is after Andrew Johnson, taking over from Abraham Lincoln, approves the reconstruction of southern states under his system. And, you know, the so-called Johnson governments. Republicans effectively blocked any recognition, and this is acting clerk Edward McPherson that does this, by refusing to place the new members in the roll call. James Brooks of New York, a leading Democrat, now denounced the precedent by which the clerk of the House, but a servant of the House, is omnipotent over its organization. Things are reversed. In February of 1867, Republicans changed the rules, um, allowing the clerk to make up this roll call. 
but also including only members elect from states represented in the preceding Congress, that is, from loyal states. Secure though the control was following the elections of 1866, Republicans were unwilling to take any chances in organizing Congress. That's the lesson the Etheridge conspiracy had taught them. So writes Herman Bels. Hope you enjoyed a little bit more information on the Etheridge conspiracy of 1863. I want to thank you for listening to websites www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. I cannot tell you how important it is to recommend the podcast to someone else. Thanks for listening.